do it the show's called deep focus we got a bing bang banger going tonight do we am i lying hold on I'm not lying am i am i telling the truth i'm i'm, I'm on it right am i, am I I'm, I'm never quite sure i can't quite tell we don't know we're not in it we're not listening to the radio ah uh, welcome back to the studio steven bernstein it's almost like it was yesterday but it was 44 years ago how is that possible <laughs> Blink your eyes, man. It's all digital. Aye. So, we've got uh, another special guest about to make his uh, appearance. This is kind of like uh, James Brown. You know, the band comes out first. Band We're comes the band. out first, yeah. Special guest getting ready to make his appearance. Yes. Scotty Hard. Scotty Hard will be in the studio. And it might be his first time up at KCR for all I know. Well, that's long overdue. Good. That's me stinking up the joint, if okay. that's the case. But... Um, we got we got some colossal music to bring to the folks. Mitch, you blew my mind when you played this for me, or I played this, and I put I put a little link to it on on the old Facebook, and people from J T. Lewis, Peter Applebaum, Will Bernard, all these cats were like, "What? What you about to hear? Jack DeJanet is playing so. I mean, everyone's playing incredible, but Jack is just lighting a fire under everyone. It's kind of mind bending. Whose band is it? Uh, a young trumpet player named Miles Davis. Yes. Now, here's a question for you. Yeah. So how old was Miles in 1970? Uh, spring of 70. He was getting ready to turn 44. Okay. Deep. And, and what was Jack like in his late 20s? Right? I don't know. Uh, he was born in... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, I, I never learned uh, quantum theory, <laughs> so... Well, he's uh, the senior cat. He's got yes. this young band. Miles is—he's uh, just recorded a "Bitches Brew," a few right? And ago. Wayne, Sh- and and according to the history books, this is Wayne Shorter's last appearance. Well, second to last, because the next night was would have been his. The next night has been released. This is unheard music, right, Mitch? Uh, never before released. Yes, N- never before Not released. Available. Not commercially released. But this is uh, Wayne Shorter's second to last night. So I'm sure. Maybe they knew this. Maybe that's the reason everyone's playing so hard. All I know is they are playing hard. This is, uh, we all know anybody who's into this genre of music is very familiar with Miles Davis playing the Fillmore. Great classic, beautiful albums released. And, and, and later on, East, I'm going to tell West. you a funny story about that. But we'll wait till we hear some music. But Yes. We're, if, assuming... Uh, my brain still is functioning at that point. I got a good story about Miles at the Fillmore. So it's my, I want to hear that. It's Miles, Wayne Shorter, Jack DeJeanette. Chick Corea. Chick Corea. Dave Holland. Dave Holland. And Ayrto. 
And so the record, the record Miles of Fillmore is that band, but is it? It's, it's Lehman or Grossman on that record? I think. Uh, I think it's Steve Grossman, right? I want to say, yeah, Grossman came in. Came, came in next, Grossman's. right? So I think it's Steve, and 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 mainly playing sopranos. I know, as I remember, at least on the record, I don't remember any tenor, and two keyboards, isn't it? Keith Jarrett and yes, and Chick on that. Yes, yeah, exactly right. But Chick's playing enough for at least oh, seven man. keyboard Come players on, man. on this. Come on, and uh, and this is so of all those many times, you know, I, I had this kind of cloudy idea of Miles just like being at the Fillmore, however many number of times. This was the very first time. Very first time. And it was on a bill with Steve Miller and Neil Young and Crazy Horse. And it's actually Crazy Horse's first gig at the Fillmore. Or first gig ever. That's what you told me. I don't know much about the Crazy Horses. That's what I've, that's what I've, I've uncovered. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Don't change Crazy Horses in the middle <laughs> no, of the stream, right? Never. That's what they say. <laughs> They're right. They're right about that. Good. I'm not going to. Yeah. Okay. What, uh, what else we got to say, man? Uh, Miles, of course, famously insulted Steve Miller's musicality after the show in, um, in a classic Miles, you know, called it some sad ass, whatever. I believe the phrase was non-playing. <laughs> Not, non-playing. I know, which is really funny because Steve Miller says that about all, all the San Francisco people. You've seen those interviews, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. He's like, oh man, these guys came and play a blues, you know, and they couldn't. They were folk musicians, you know. You know, Steve Miller's from Chicago, I believe, right? And, and actually, Dallas, I think. Whatever. <laughs> Some place. Well, anyway, but anyway, I, anyway, he had actually grown up, you know, uh, you know, playing blues of some sort, I guess, and he was uh, not impressed by the musicianship in San Francisco. <laughs> well, Miles comes ready to Woo! deal. Let's do it. Deep focus. Stephen Bernstein's here with me. I'm Mitch Goldman. Scotty Hard, imminent arrival, it's WKCR. Thank you. 
Oh, we will be coming back to that very soon. That is music you've almost certainly never heard outside of a handful of extraordinarily dedicated Miles Davis fans. I don't think too many people have heard this. You might be familiar. You might, if you're if you're a fan of Miles Davis in the early 70s, you know Miles' life at the Fillmore. But, and you might know, released I think in the early 2000s, March 7th, 1970. This is March 6th, 1970. This one has not been released, so you're hearing this maybe for the first time. It's WKCR. The show's called Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. Here's how we play the game. We invite guests into the studio. They choose a topic, and the challenge to your humble narrator is to find live, unreleased recordings of the music that they pick. I'm so happy to be in the studio with Stephen Bernstein, Scotty Hard, and you guys uh, threw it down. You told me what you wanted to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how did you find this? Oh, well, uh, I just went into the vast holdings of the WKCR archives. Wow, and they just have this. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's incredible. I gotta, I'm going to walk you in there. It okay. sounds like uh, I'm mythologizing, but it's really, it's right on the other side of the hallway uh, under a lock and key, and I'm going to open that door for you when the music starts again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, how are, and are they all, is it unauthorized, or what? what's the... We don't have to. Right. Go into great detail okay. about that right now. But the I'm just curious, is, like why why this was never released because it's so good. It is. It is. Well, we could you know call some people up and have an insurrection just take this place over. You know that, right? Exactly. It's not that hard. You don't exactly. even have to. Okay, right. You got the key. <laughs> you're you're in. You're oh, already in. Already in. We don't have to storm the Capitol. Oh my gosh! <laughs> just throw the doors open. What? Uh, so yeah, no. This. Uh, um, we've never really talked about your interest. With either of you guys, I don't think about this particular bit of music, but obviously holds some interest for you, both of you, each of you separately together. Oh, hugely influential to me, and and um, I would say that uh, you know Tio Macero was a gigantic influence on me, and and I've said many times, I said Tio taught me everything I know before I even met him, and then I worked with him for twelve years, so. Um, that was, you know, he just sort of redefined what uh, uh, somebody can do in the studio with a band. And I think I've sort of, I, I've taken that challenge on to move that forward into what I do as a producer and as a musician. And, and you know, Tio, that's the other thing that was always inspiring to me was that, you know, he he's was first and foremost a musician which is what I am I'm not really a recording engineer even though I've been doing it for 35 years and I've just sort of learned along the way how to do it just by using my ears basically but uh, you know it's all informed by being a musician and, and being a composer and being a person who plays in bands i mean you know i've always said too there's always one guy in the band that knows what end of the mic cable goes into the mic and that guy usually ends up being an engineer because he realizes <laughs> that oh i could probably make a bit more money doing that than like <laughs> playing so but yeah i mean and the opportunity like what you know when we first met was around the time when i did vernon reed's solo record back in 1995 and that's when i first met Tio and prince paul came to me and said oh I'm doing this I'm doing Vernon Reed's solo record um you know I wondered if 
you know, you might want to work on it with me. And I'm like, well, maybe. And then he's like, yeah, and there's this other like old guy involved, this <laughs> Tio, Tio Macero. And he's, yeah, that's the guy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. Tio and I just like clicked from the very beginning. We were just sort of like same guy different from a different era. I mean, Tio studied with Varez. Wow. Which is... I mean, that blew my mind when he told me that, you know, and he, you know, his, his, uh, the breadth of what he kind of knew and what he did was pretty incredible, you know, from banjo records to the graduate yeah, to, well, to you know, that, all the Miles stuff, obviously. As that Columbia house guy, you, you know, I yeah. would imagine you walk in in the morning, like, what are we doing today? Oh, okay, great. It's going to be an orchestra. Right. It's going to be a, you know, string yeah. band. It's going to be. And he also, the other thing I remember about that from him, you spent a lot more time with him than I did, but I think I was sure. there when we yep. were getting the ball rolling. He was so open to possibilities. His just readiness to to play and let things happen and find the happy accidents and yep. just uh, astonishing for uh, of anybody, but, you know, somebody at that level of... And at, at that point in his career yeah. where he could have just, just rested on stuff, he just he was constantly interested in doing different things and uh, exploring different avenues and always was, you know, into electronics and and any kind of manipulation and anything, you know, that would be kind of crazy, you know, you'd have, often when you're overdubbing things, you'll have two or three takes of a solo and he'd be like, put them both on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, you know, and his eyes would just light up, you yeah. know, like he was still much like a little, he was like a little kid, you know, like, and, and I'm like, well, if I can keep that joy for the for that long in my career, then then that's something to, to strive towards. So why are we talking about Tio Macero? There's a live recording. He's, uh, you know, what is, okay, he's a record producer. What's he have to do with this? But he's, it's uh, really essential, I think, talking about Miles Davis in this period. Well, I will say a funny story is that, um, so Miles the Fillmore was kind of changed my life. Summer 1980. Actually, I don't know if it was 79 or 80, but I was up in the Redwoods at this music camp I used to work at. And me and all the guys my age, we'd hang out. You know, the kids would go to sleep. By the way, those kids were like Josh Redman and Jay Lane, you know, like a lot of famous musicians now, but they were kids. And uh, they, uh, Dave Ellis, they, uh, they'd go to sleep, and we'd go to, like, uh, where the cooks had their own tent, like, a little farther away so we could, like, you know— you know, do the things that counts. Do the like things do. that you do in the Russian River area. You know, in little, the seventies. In the seventies, and and they had a great sound system. We'd be under the stars in the redwoods, and we'd like blast miles of the Fillmore, just staring at the stars night after night, man. And that just kind of changed the way I thought about everything. And years later, Bob Belton, God bless him, he says to me, "Yeah, man, I I, uh, I fixed all those crappy edits that Teal made on Miles of the Fillmore." And I said, what crappy edits? He goes, oh, didn't you hear all those glitchy edits? And I just, to me, that's just how I heard the music. Like, I didn't hear them as glitchy edits. I heard them as, like, that's how the music went. It was very interesting how different people absorb things. I'm just out there in the Redwoods, baby. I'm just hearing it. And so Tio's, where he had decided as a composer 
to make these each night fit onto one side of a record, right? He had to like break them down. He had to make compositional uh, choices, which changed my life, that's for sure. Well, I mean, and I saw some blurb, I don't know if it's in this or somewhere else, but they're talking about how, you know, the band would play, I mean, live, and it would sound like their edits the way, I mean, I think that that really influenced Tio. I mean, it influenced Miles in the way he was starting to hear things. And I mean, I've found that, you know, like a lot of records I do are, are pretty heavily manipulated let's say uh, you know they're not at all like the way the band played them and then you know the band will end up having to go back and like Bernstein's talking about our new record the, the hard the sex mob the hard way going back and having to learn how to play them or after we after I did the terror end of beauty with Harriet Tubman it came out and they weren't really playing around much and I went to see them like almost a year after the record came out and certainly much more than a year after I had made it. And they were playing this stuff and I kept like every song, I'm like, oh shit, they're playing the arrangement. Like, cause I don't expect people to be even be able to or even want to, or I don't even care for them to play it like the way it is on the record, that's the record. And that's just kind of the way it was that day or or, whatever but they were like you know all the, obviously the notes weren't the same and whatnot but the sort of general arc of the structure of the thing were the, the, the same I was kind of shocked and you know I went to Brandon after the show I'm like man I'm really surprised that you guys played them so much like the record and, and he's like man that shit works <laughs> yeah and I'm like wow and I was like okay yeah i Thought so. <laughs> You're listening to Deep Focus on WKCR. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. So smiled upon tonight being here in the studio with Scotty Hard, Stephen Bernstein. Um, Scott, I'm wondering if this is talking about our experience in the studio with Tio Macero. Mm. Can't believe that was almost 30 years ago. I'm going to set that aside for a moment. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Try not to think about that. But I'm going to ask you if your recollection is the same as mine, because we talked about this stuff then. I was really interested in what he had to say, and I love this music now. I loved it then. To hear him tell it, Miles could not be bothered and for with any kind of post-production or whatever. He did something. He was done. He was on to the next thing. Edits, titles anything he, he would just come and get a copy of the acetate like he would you know they would messenger it over to his townhouse like he you know he he left and and Tio said like they would show up sometimes for sessions at six seven in the morning like after the gig after the gig and the hang and then they'd show up at the studio like that early right yeah wow yeah but I think you have to understand until our generation that's what artists did. They recorded, and then that was their job. And they were done. Like, we come from another generation. We were like self produced We're putting out our own records. We used to buy, me and Scotty, we used to go buy our own 24-track tapes. Remember that? We'd have to, like, oh, yeah. we'd have to go to, we'd have to go to the, the, that tape place in, uh, off, off the Gowanus. Fifth, Fifth Avenue, uh, yeah. Gowanus. 
We, you know what I'm saying? Those things were heavy, man. Yeah, and right? I, I don't know if we could carry those. Now. But I'm tra- trying to say like that, like we, because part, we're part of that, you know, punk rock do-it-yourself generation. That's not what these guys. These guys had record contracts. Yeah. They had gigs to get to. Tio jo- was one of the last of the true A and R men. Well, and Tio, right? like he I'm wouldn't, he last, would, like but... he would. It, I would just, it would constantly be an issue. Like he would show up before the studio even opened, because he'd get up at five o'clock in the morning and write. A, a string quartet and then he'd come to the studio at nine and wonder why no one was there and of course i was the late night guy and would like show up at no- like okay the session's gonna start at noon and teal's like what and i'm like okay 11 <laughs> and and he would still show up at 9 30 before they even opened the doors because he was used to the guys in the lab coats and the guys who would like had full-time jobs who would show up at the studio at eight o'clock in the morning or whatever it's funny what you're talking about with tapes because one of the well, not one of the few times, because Teal had, a, at times, a pretty short fuse. But one of the times I remember him screaming at someone was because most of the studios that I worked at, you could just bring your own tapes, and we would go and buy them. Even when I was working for record companies, I would tell them, here's the name of the place, order them, and have them FedEx to the studio. But a lot of studios, like the Hit Factory and places like that, you had to buy reels from them, and they were like twice the, yeah, they'd the mark money. Yeah, they'd mark them up so high. Oh, yeah, a cassette cost 50 bucks. Yeah. And, and we're I, talking about, I think you're talking about the same thing I'm remembering, two-inch magnetic tape. Yeah. And it was, how big was that well, reel? Well, it's, it's pretty much a, a 12-inch box or 11-inch yeah. square box that's two inches and some. And it was 18, min, 18 minutes of music, right? At 30 ips? Uh, less. It was just a little under 15 minutes, yeah. Wow. Or it's just over 15. <laughs> Back when I was making Wu-Tang Forever, we would have to take about a dozen of those tapes every night and we would stick them in a in the trunk of a cab and take them back to the Oakwoods apartments because the RZA didn't trust the guy who had a vault, like a climate-controlled vault. And I'm like, no, no, let's leave them here. And he goes, no, I don't trust that. I don't trust that. You guys, you and Carlos take those tapes home every night. <laughs> that was a labor of love. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> love my neck. There wasn't my... a lot of love going around back then. There's a lot of something. <laughs> well, back to the film worries. Yes. Yeah. So, um, what? Uh, let me ask you, Stephen. I'm going to ask you, and then maybe we'll get back. We'll yeah. Then we'll hear some music. Okay. Should we play some music first, or should we? Well, yes. Play some music. Come on, man. Are right, we going to play some music? Yeah. It's just too good. It's all too good. The conversation's too good. The music's too good. <laughs> all right. So, if you're just uh, signing up, we're listening to the show's deep focus steven bernstein's here scotty hart is here i'm your host mitch goldman deep focus we are listening to a live unreleased recording of miles davis it's his first time of these many legendary performances at the fillmore east we haven't mentioned the name of bill graham who owned the venues and presented you hear him very placidly acknowledging the band at the end of the set um And he was renowned for putting these bills together, and he knew the crowd wanted to come and hear The Grateful Dead or Neil Young, whoever it was, and his take on it was, okay, but first you're going to hear Muddy Waters. First you're going to hear John Lee Hooker. We'll we'll get into Bill Graham later. We'll We'll get into that later. Yeah, that'd be another hour-long conversation. That's true. So, So Miles Davis, he's coming ready to steal this audience away. And Wayne Shorter's last performance with the band, with Miles. 
very significantly. We're going to talk about all this more. Okay, we're going back to, it's the first set. It's the opening act, March 6th, 1970. Miles Davis built his Miles Davis sextet at the Fillmore East on WKCR. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs>
to right now is the greatest thing in the world and that's all i want to hear but really this this moment miles davis man and the great time i was having i hope you're enjoying as much hanging out with stephen bernstein and scotty hard doing this show this is my stuff and i'm glad you're digging it too okay that was part one there's three parts uh this was recorded August 7th, 2023. If you're loving it, come back for parts two and three. And, you know, uh, I'm going to ask you, a lot of people say to me, like, what can I do? You don't have any advertisers. You don't ask for money. How can I give a little something back, Mitch? Tell somebody. Tell somebody about this show. Tell somebody about the music that you love and where they can find it. That would mean a whole lot to us, and you'll be spreading more love and interest for this music that you love and that's going to help keep it around so everybody wins all right see you over at part two